Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. and welcome to Nightlight. Thanks for spending your evening with us. We're so happy that you could join us because Mark has an amazing show tonight. First, I do want to thank Ken Quiethawk for that amazing introduction. You can find him at nativestorytellers.com and it's an amazing site. It's fascinating to see how history was preserved before the written word came into being. Uh, check it out. It's It's magical and his voice is phenomenal. Mark has uh, a lineup tonight that is that is just amazing. He has phenomenal people here. They're going to be talking about solstice and at two amazing sites we have here in the United States. And it's it's very exciting because this is something that that is not in the history books and yet it really should be. So, Mark, I'm looking forward to this show. You've got some fantastic people here. I'm looking forward to it also. How, how, how are you doing? Doing well. Got a nap today. Okay. Uh, that's good. So uh, you're, you'll be wide awake for our three guests and I others. Am. And and you. Yeah. <laughs> well, and yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, you you uh, let the audience know that uh, you know the theme tonight is the upcoming summer solstice so there's actually some semblance of continuity for once (laughs) yeah Uh, that's true yeah yeah, some of these shows have absolutely no uh, connection between guests whatsoever but they were available (laughs) Um, well though you know you do manage to always find a thread somehow yeah, the uh, there, yeah, you know, uh, most of the time it's they're, they're they're willing to be guests. That's that's about the only uh, commonality. But uh, yeah, there's yeah, tonight's going to work out. And uh, yeah, uh, you know, so, so, you, know, you know, we do have uh, uh, you know these summer solstice ce- celebrations coming up at Ohio Serpent Mound and 
the uh, America Stonehenge in uh, New Hampshire. And, you know, we're kind of going to be focusing a little bit more on, uh, you know, the snake effigies at, at these sites, which you know, um, maybe a lot of people aren't aware that America Stonehenge uh, has those. Um, and so we uh, don't have to wait for the uh, July 4th weekend. You know, we have exciting events coming up on June 21st. And yeah. Uh, yeah, just uh, like two and a half weeks away, or something like that. Um, so, so uh, if, if you're looking for family e- events on uh, June 21st, you know that that weekend, um, stop out at uh, Serpent Mountain, uh, Peebles, Ohio, or uh, head up to uh, New Hampshire, you know, Dairy, New Hampshire, and uh, check out America's Stonehenge. Uh, our first guest is uh, Jeff Wilson. Uh, he, he's, uh, uh, he, you know, w- returning. Uh, he was with us in early March to discuss the seed blessings uh, at uh, um, the, the Serpent Mound. Uh, he's you know, the founder of the Friends of Serpent Mounds uh, Facebook page. Uh, he's a uh, frequent lecturer on America's Stonehenge. He's a archaeoastronomy scholar, and he's a crop circle researcher. So, uh, welcome, Jeff, to Nightlight. Thanks for the uh, return invitation. Um, if I could make a tiny correction to your introduction, I've never given a lecture about America's Stonehenge. Uh, oh. But but uh, maybe you're. I think I said it. Okay. Well. <laughs> okay. I, 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 maybe I jotted something down wrong here. You're a lecturer on America's prehistory. Yes, uh, I have lectured widely on on uh, a variety of uh, America prehistoric topics. So uh, mm-hmm. mostly mostly Serpent Mound, but uh, you know a variety of other sites as well. But mm-hmm. uh, never Amer- never America's Stonehenge. Okay, uh, that's well, a, that's not one that I've really talked about. Okay, well, it's, uh, oh, thanks for reminding me that you may need to get bifocals. <laughs> okay. But but you, uh, you, you know, Jeff, you have in a, in a couple weekends, you have a whole bunch of uh, family activities uh, going on at. Ohio's uh, Serpent Mound. Uh, can you tell us a little, you know, a little bit about what uh, what's going to be going on at the park that weekend? Sure. Uh, the Friends of Serpent Mound, which is a 501c3 uh, nonprofit that was established in 2004, has been holding an annual event, a festival at Serpent Mound to coincide with the um, summer solstice sunset astronomical alignment that occurs at Serpent Mound. And so we've been doing this for a number of years and the festival keeps getting here every year. And so uh, it's free to the public. So uh, if you're interested, you know, uh, you don't get charged for that. Um, 
this year uh, it starts on Friday, June 21st, uh, which is the solstice, and runs through Sunday the 23rd. And uh, every single day there will be um, free lectures about various aspects of Serpent Mound and other prehistoric sites um, in the Ohio Valley. But uh, there are also a whole other range of of uh, things to see and do, including there's a whole wide variety of musicians. There are uh, native drummers. There are flute players. There are going to be singing bowls. There's um, going to be uh, there's a, a company called Family Traditions Animal Adventures that's going to be bringing uh, animals. Uh, for, uh, you know, kids to see. Um, there's going to be uh, evening stargazing with telescopes. Uh, there'll be tours of Serpent Mound. There's going to be a bee workshop. There's going to be a canoe tour along Brush Creek. So if you have a kayak or a canoe, uh, you know, you can join in that event. They're going to uh, go paddle up and down uh, Brush Creek south of Serpent Mound, north of Serpent Mound, and alongside it. Uh, there'll be a wild plants walk. There'll be a bird watching hike. There's going to be a soap making demonstration and workshop. There's going to be workshops on probiotics and fermented foods. And I mean, there's just a wide range of stuff. There'll be artifact experts uh, that will be on hand to show off local prehistoric artifacts. And if you want to bring your own for identification, they can certainly do that. So there's just a huge array of stuff and, um, you know, food and, and all kinds of things. So uh, you, you can't beat uh, the wide uh, array of, of activities, uh, you know, for the price of nothing. So come on out. Have fun. Yeah, yeah, the the uh, canoeing sounds like uh, – a once in a lifetime experience. Uh, well, it's the first time we're we're doing it. Um, we have brought in a local expert who conducts these kinds of tours for the Shawnee uh, State Forest in Ohio, and so she's coming up to lead that. Um, so that'll be a first. We have never done that before, so it should be kind of fun. Mm-hmm. That's right. And. Uh, yeah, you're. Yeah, you know, the serp. Ser, you know, we get into a lot more of the serp, uh, serpent mounds uh, area in, in, in just a little bit, but um, yeah, you know, and when we were doing some, um, you know, uh, prep for the show, you, you were telling me that there is a. Uh, you can follow the uh, waterway from Fort Hill to uh, uh, you know, the, the Serpent Mound, you know, past the Serpent Mound, and you know, go, yeah, uh, go further yeah. down the street. Uh, uh, what's the importance of uh, Fort Hill? Fort Hill is a prehistoric earthwork like Serpent Mound um, that is about five miles um, as kind of the crow flies. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of distance it would be to canoe it. Uh, 
based on the winding nature of the of the creek but uh it is on the same watershed so it's um a branch of brush creek just north of serpent mound the creek uh uh kind of uh bifurcates and uh one branch called baker's fork goes all the way up and uh, wraps itself around uh, the base of Fort Hill. Hmm. Fort Hill um, was likely constructed by the Hopewell people around somewhere between 100 B.C. and uh, 400 A.D., somewhere in that time frame. There hasn't really been any good archaeological excavations that have been done there to do any carbon dating to date the earthwork. It's almost a pristine earthwork. Uh, it, it's not been developed. It is in um, a state-protected uh, area, uh, and so the forest has sort of reclaimed all of the land. And so this is a earthwork that sits on top of a several hundred-foot-high hill, so it's quite a hike to get up to the top of it. But the whole top of the escarpment is lined with an earthen wall several feet high uh, made out of earthen rock. And um, it is astonishing to, you know, think that people carried all that dirt and rock up there to build these walls, you know, 2,000 years ago. Um, There are also a couple of circular earthen enclosures just south of, uh, Fort Hill in between Fort Hill and um, and Serpent Mound that are also part of that um, protected area. And uh, so the fact that it's just a few miles from Serpent Mound, um, few people have ever heard of Fort Hill, um, whereas lots of people have heard of Serpent Mound. But, uh, yeah. you know, they're, they're pretty close together. Okay. It, it, I... I I wasn't aware of the uh, two sacred circles. Uh, it's a, it, it, you know, you're just kind of a- adding more to yeah, the, the, the were, area. If you were a friend of Serpent Mound, uh, join you know us on the Facebook page. You would have uh, gotten a notification. We actually did an earthwork tour earlier this year, about a month and a half ago now, mm-hmm. and that was one of the places we took people to was to see one of the earthen circles south of Fort Hill um, on the on the schedule of uh, earthworks that we saw that day. So um, you know it is rare. Most people who've heard of Fort Hill have never heard of the earthen circle south of Fort Hill. But, uh, you know, and so we, we try to educate people on all kinds of hidden stuff around the area. Uh, cause there's a lot of, lot of cool stuff to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, 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 it just really, uh, sounds like, you know, you're, you're explaining that there was a lot more to the, sacred landscape than just the serpent mound right I mean you can start with where serpent mound is located Uh, it is inside of a meteor crater Uh, the meteor crater is about five miles in diameter and serpent mound 
sits in sort of the southwestern portion of the crater. Um, the crater was made by an asteroid impact about 200 million years ago, uh, give or take a few million years. And um, it has got a federal designation, actually. It's known as the Serpent Mound Crypto Explosive Area Natural National Landmark. And that was dedicated all the way back in 1980. Um, and the crater itself um, when the impact occurred, this area was, uh, you know, kind of a shallow ocean, but it fractured the rock uh, and created an area that ha- that has all kinds of fault lines, and scientists have been out to study the electromagnetic changes inside the crater, so there are uh, electromagnetic field highs and lows that have been documented in the crater. There are gravitational anomalies in the crater uh, based on different densities of the rock. Um, and all of that stuff has been mapped out by geologists. And so Serpent Mound sits in between, like right in between two electromagnetic field highs. And uh, so it's in an unusual portion of the crater. Um it is interesting that um, as long as people have been known to have been in here in Ohio, they have been uh, they they've found artifacts dating all the way back to the end of the last ice age. Uh, there is a site in Adams County along the Ohio River called uh, Sandy Springs, which is one of the largest uh, Paleolithic sites east of the Mississippi River, and almost no one knows anything about it. Uh, It's been practically uh, not even studied by archaeologists. There was a mapping project back in the 70s to, you know, kind of identify what was there, and uh, they haven't been really back since. Um, So, you know, lots of local artifact collectors have been down there, and they've picked up you know, dozens and dozens of Paleolithic points down there, um, as well as around Serpent Mound. So we know that people were here at the end of the last Ice Age based on the artifacts that they left behind. And so what's interesting to note is that, you know, if you were one of those people, kind of close your eyes for a second and picture yourself walking up from the Ohio River and reaching the rim of the crater uh, on the south side coming up from the Ohio River, you would have reached this cliff that looks out over this five-mile-wide circle in the ground. And, uh, you know, Serpent Mound is, is visible from that southern rim of the crater. And just beyond the crater... On the north side, you would have been able to see Fort Hill from that point. And right to the north of Fort Hill is where the glaciers stopped. And so you could have, you know, coming up from the Ohio River, you would have reached essentially the end of the world uh, because, you know, you would have looked out and seen this big circle in the ground. You would have seen Fort Hill, and then you would have seen this, wall of two miles of ice going up into the sky. And, uh, you know, 
that is an amazing uh you know kind of picture to try to get your head around uh to understand what that landscape is like and so once the once the glaciers melted there there are certain areas around uh serpent mound and fort hill that are known as the flats uh and they were in prehistoric times large lakes that were left over from the glacial meltwater and so the water coming down through baker's fork around fort hill all the way to serpent mound there probably would have been much more water flowing down through there in in prehistoric times all the way you know to uh 300 bc is about the time that serpent mound was constructed based on on the carbon dating so uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in the area uh, that it's hard to, you know, go back in time and understand that the landscape was a lot different than it is today. And what we see today is sort of the remnants of that really amazing magical landscape. Yeah, um, Jeff, I, I, you know, the image that you're talking about is, you know, uh, Twelve, fifteen thousand years ago, people you know, just walk a few miles north of the river. They you know, get to the crater, and then there's this, you know, saying two mile high sheet of ice. It just it seems like it'd be, uh, yeah, just some some foreboding. Type uh, image to you know, for for a traveler to process, but you know, the, the people ha- have been s- stopping at the Serpent Mound location. See, it seems like for you know pro- uh, over ten thousand years. Yeah, absolutely, and. and it, Okay, so you know the, the you know actual mounds, uh, you know the serpent mound wasn't built that long ago. Uh, you know, uh, when was the the mounds, uh, the, you know, the serpent effigy built? So um, in 2011 and 2012. There was a project led by the archaeologist Dr. William Romain, who uh, put together a team of archaeologists that had different special specialties. And one of the groups from Indiana University brought equipment to do a series of core samples along the length of the serpent. And so they, you know, put a core from the top of the mound all the way down until they hit rock and pulled those out there about, you know, an inch to two inches in diameter. And then they looked at all the layers that were there. And I think they did uh, 19 cores uh, along the length of the serpent. Um, They didn't do the tail. They didn't do the oval or the head, but they did basically the body of the serpent. And in seven of those cores, um, in the layer in which they could tell – like where the original mound was constructed upon the original soil layer, they identified that that layer of soil. They were able to carbon date 
that in seven of the cores, and the median age came back at about 321 B.C. And so the people that were here in Ohio at that time, there was a culture known as the Adena people, and uh, they were here from about uh, 1,000 B.C. to about 100 B.C. And so that falls right in to the middle of uh, late Adena. And uh, so it appears that's when Serpent Mount uh, was constructed uh, in roughly its current form, at least. Okay. And uh, people are visiting in a couple weekends. What will they be seeing with the... Uh, sunset um, on the 21st is it in one of uh, in one of the coils uh, where's the position of the uh, sunset on that day sure so actually there are two summer solstice sunset alignments although both of them are now becoming difficult to see uh, because of the growth of the forest uh, surrounding mm-hmm. Serpent Mound. Um, but the main one, the one that is was the first alignment discovered, is if you stand along the back of the head of the serpent, which is this little triangular-shaped area uh, behind the oval of the serpent, um, if you stand kind of along that back of the, of the head, straight through the center of the oval and draw a line right to the horizon from there, that's where the sunset occurs on the solstice. And so that's the main alignment. Now it turns out that one of the bends of the serpent also points to the same spot. Um, But it's very difficult to see through the trees. Now Uh, the trees have grown up so much that, that, it kind of obscures it, but essentially Serpent Mound has three bends in it that point towards the east, and it has three bends in it that point towards the west. And so one of the western bends points to the summer solstice sunset. One points to the equinox sunsets, um, both the vernal equinox in the spring and the autumnal equinox in the fall. And then one of them uh, points to the winter solstice sunset. The three bends at the, of the mound that point towards the east all point to the rising of the sun, one to the summer solstice sunrise, one to the equinox sunrises, and one to the winter solstice sunrise. So all the bends in the serpent all point to certain key dates throughout the seasons uh, as the sun moves in its annual, you know, journey across the sky. Okay. And, and I've heard a little bit about this uh, lost coil or, you know, bend. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, um, do we know what that the the original function for that coil was and you know you know was there something like it uh yeah it just wasn't a, a part of an alignment and it it was removed uh, uh, what's the story on that 
also it's not been been very well studied and it hasn't been very long since that was discovered that was discovered again as part of Bill Romaine's Serpent Man project in 2011-2012 one of the archaeologists that was on the team was uh, Dr. Jared Burks from Ohio Valley Archaeology Incorporated and he used a magnetometer to do kind of a survey of the ground all around Serpent Mound, uh, the mound itself. And what his magnetometer revealed was that in the area right behind the head of the serpent, that triangular-shaped area, pointing towards the north, what what appeared to be uh, another bend in the serpent that has now since been erased, but that it was the remnant of it was still in the in the subsoil, and so oh. they did an excavation um, in which they cut like a five meter trench across one section of that, and they did find the remnant layer for that prehistoric bend. So what that tells us is that Serpent Mound in its current configuration was not its original configuration, that there must have been some earlier phase, not unlike the phases that, you know, at Stonehenge. Stonehenge had many phases over a long period of time in its construction. Right. And so we know now that there are at least two phases to Serpent Mound, not including the modern changes that have take, taken place since the 1800s but that there was at least one other phase in prehistoric times. Um, now, they didn't find anything that they could carbon date in that layer when they did the excavation, but they did find a bunch of small little flakes and one partial point, which uh, Burks identified as dating from the archaic. Wow. So um, that's much older than Adina. And we don't know how much older because the archaic is a long, long period of time uh, from about 8,000 B.C. to about 1,000 B.C. But um, I will say that in my study of all the artifacts that were collected by the Harvard Peabody Museum in their excavations in the 1800s, 40 percent of all the artifacts that they collected while they were at Serpent Mound date to the archaic. And so uh, it's by far the largest group of artifacts uh, dates to the archaic. So uh, there's definitely a big archaic presence at Serpent Mound. It's now unclear whether or not maybe Serpent Mound had been reconstructed by the Adena or refurbished by the Adena, um, and that had, may have been there even older than, uh, you know, the Adena uh, version of it uh, so it's so that's an open question now your question to the alignment of it certainly the sun and the moon and all the planets they never get that far north for that coil to point to any of those objects in the sky however I suspect this is just a uh, you know kind of my hypothesis at this point is that that bend in the serpent likely points to where the circumpolar constellations in the sky sort of rise at. So there are a whole series of star patterns that rotate around a central point in the sky. 
it's a place called the North Celestial Pole. Today, that's where the star Polaris is, and it's where our North Pole sort of points out into space. And so as the Earth rotates, it appears that the stars in the sky rotate, right? And they all rotate around that central point. Well, there's these constellations that are really close to that central point. They call those the circumpolar constellations. And I think that that bend in the serpent was pointing to the horizon where they generally rise from. Um, Now, why would that be important? Yeah. You know, there was a polar shift. And and the polar star was was shifted at that particular point in time. Is there any way of determining whether that that curve in the, in the mound could be dated back to when the polar shift happened? So there's a possibility for that. Um, and and the polar shift that you're talking about is due to an effect called precession. Um, yep. There is a sort of wobble in the Earth's spin that takes place over a very, very long period of time, about 26,000 years to complete one cycle of the wobble. And so Mm -hmm. um, that direction where our North Pole sort of points out into space changes all the time, but very slowly. So it moves about one degree in that circle every 76 years. So if you remember when you were a kid where the, where it was pointed, maybe by the time you die, it will have moved one degree. And that's how, that's sort of the uh, cycle of time for trying to track that uh, change in where the North pole points, but you're right. um, Thousands of years ago, uh, Polaris was not the North Celestial Pole, uh, but about the time that Serpent Mound was built, there was a star um, known as Thuban, which is in the constellation of Draco. It's uh, Alpha Draconis. And uh, Draco may have been the North Star at the time that Serpent Mound was constructed. Very interesting. Uh, uh, Barbara, that was an interesting observation. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, yeah, it, 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 Jeff, as we learn more about the Serpent Mound from you, you, know, uh, you get the you know, th- three bends to the east, three, three to the west, and, and you get the... Uh, alignments associated with the bends. Um, yeah, this, you know, what you and Barbara just talked about, you know, the possibility of this lost coil, um, its role uh, with other alignments, um, the the electromagnetic fields, and you brought up the interesting point that forty percent of the artifacts were archaic. I mean, yeah, you know, this is a, a level of sophistication concentrated at one site over a very long period of time, and you know, it just 
yeah, kept you know, the en- engineers just kept evolving this place into s- such a more uh, uh, like uh, celestial temple type center. Well, they were certainly um, trying to make a place where they were able to commune with both the upper sky world and the lower underworld. So uh, Serpent Mound is is a a constructed um, effigy. An effigy is a representation of, uh, you know, a being. And uh, the this particular you know kind of effigy is is a recognizable sculpture of a snake, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in Native American uh, oral traditions, it appears that Serpent Mound is a representation of of a mythological snake uh, known as the Great Horned Serpent. Um, across North America. There are roughly, I want to say, uh, 20 to 25 tribes that had this, um, that shared this uh, oral tradition of either what they called the Great Horned Serpent or the Underwater Panther. And uh, it was sort of a deity of the underworld. Uh, The way to kind of wrap your mind around it is in the way in which they viewed their cosmos there's sort of the plane of existence that we live on. And then there's an upper sky world and a lower underworld. In the upper sky world, there are mythological beings that live there and rule up there. And then there's ones that are in the underworld. And uh, the ones that are the most prominent in the sky world are the Thunderbirds. And so there are Native American oral traditions that talk about how the Thunderbirds are always sort of diametrically opposed to the Great Horned Serpent. And um, the myth, you know, sort of says that every year the Thunderbirds start out uh, and they, they go in search of the Great Horned Serpent and they have to kill the Great Horned Serpent with their fiery arrows of lightning in order to uh, renew the world for another year. If they don't do it, then the world ends. And so there is this sort of, um, you know, great mythological struggle between the Thunderbirds and the Great Horned Serpent. And Serpent Mound appears to be laid out. I mentioned uh, uh, Alfred Draconis or Thuban in the constellation of Draco one of these circumpolar constellations. Well, Serpent Mound itself, uh, one hypothesis that was put forward by uh, author Ross Hamilton, who I think has been on your show, mm-hmm. um, he, 25 years ago or so, uh, laid out the constellation of Draco over the top of the body of, of the effigy of Serpent Mound and was able to match up about every star with the exception of Thuban or uh, Alpha Draconis, which appeared in the first bend uh, behind the head of the serpent. It, it 
kind of falls right in that open space, which happens to be the exact center point of Serpent Mound. From that point to the tip of the serpent and from that point to the tail of the serpent is the same distance. And so it would be almost as if if you placed it up in the sky, the serpent would rotate around that central point. Um, And so it's kind of laid out like the constellation of Draco. But the thing to remember is Draco is not a Native American constellation. Uh, Draco is a Greek constellation. The Native Americans connected the star patterns differently. And uh, the one, you know, sort of tribal group that seems to remember their star lore better than all the others uh, because of, you know, they were one of the last to, to, you know, be sort of civilized by whites coming to, you know, North America were the Sioux peoples. And the Lakota, have, I have, they've put out, uh, you know, anthropological studies of what the Lakota believed their star patterns to be. And that star pattern that, you know, the Greeks identified as Draco to the Lakota It's the Thunderbird. And so if you think about that for a second, why would Serpent Man be laid out like the constellation of the Thunderbird? Well, it's because Serpent Man is a place where you can go and you can communicate with both the upper sky world, which is what Serpent Man is laid out like, the constellation of the Thunderbird, and the lower underworld, it's shaped like the Great Horned Serpent. And it's made out of earth. So it's this fusion. It's a fusion of the upper sky world and the lower underworld onto our plane of existence. So you can go there and you can commune with both places. So it's, it's, a, it's a very, very, uh, you know, esoteric place to, to visit, uh, to try to take into account a place that is constructed to envelop the whole cosmos, right? It integrates the movement of the sky, the sun and the moon and the planets are all, there are all those alignments exist there, but it's also laid out like the most important constellation in the sky at that time, which all the other stars in the sky rotated around. And, uh, you know, it fuses all that into one, you know, place it's a it's a really amazing you know work of engineering you think about other ancient sites in the world places like stonehenge or you know other places that have archaeo astronomy alignments encoded in them stone a lot of them are just stone circles right well this is not a stone circle this is an effigy of a recognizable figure a sculpture that incorporates many, many more alignments than any of the other stone circles or any of the other archaeoastronomy sites in the world. This incorporates them all into an integrated design. There's nothing else like it in the entire world. And part of one of the lectures, you're going to give two lectures, one of your lectures is on serpent effigies of North America, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sure going to be uh, 
you know, d- discussing the SERP amount since you're there. But yeah, you know, so the- for this this uh, summer solstice event, I will be giving two lectures: one on Friday evening and one on Saturday afternoon. The one on Friday evening is a new lecture that I put together this year, which is summarizing all of the remote sensing archaeological efforts that have been done at Serpent Mound over the past uh, decade or so. Um, So I was one of the first to do uh, any remote sensing archaeology at Serpent Mound. I used LIDAR. I was the first one to use LIDAR for archaeology in Ohio. And I did Serpent Mound first, and then I did about 60 other sites. Um, But uh, I'll, I'll review those findings then uh, I'll review uh, Jared Burks's findings with his magnetometer for the Serpent Mound project. Mm-hmm. He did further magnetometer work in the rest of the park later on. He also did some ground-penetrating radar. Uh, Indiana University did some work with uh, what is known as electric resistivity. They did an electric resistivity survey. Um, and then uh, most recently, I've done some work with... Uh, drones to look at uh, the ground in different wavelengths of light, and that has seemingly revealed some additional features which no one has has previously found uh, in any of the other archaeological efforts. So I'll be talking about that on Friday night. And then on Saturday, my lecture uh, is going to be about the serpent effigies of North America. I'm in the process of writing a book about Serpent Mound, and one of the chapters that I, I wrote is about all the other serpent effigies that have been found besides the Serpent Mound in Adams County, Ohio. And so I was able to map out 95 additional serpent effigies across North America, um, and they're made out of not just earth like Serpent Mound. Some are made out of stone. Some are what is, are known as intaglios, which are basically carved out of the earth. So the shape is carved into the ground rather than being raised up above the ground like a mound is. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. and, and so, you know, I, I mapped all of the serpents that I was able to find information for for uh, Canada and the United States. Um, and there are, you know, the lecture will focus on probably about 10 to 12 of the 95. Um, So I'll talk about, you know, what's the oldest one that's been, you know, discovered. What's the new most recent one that we know of that was constructed. What's the one that's been found the most recently, you know, uh, and and look at, at other, you know, interesting ones that, um, some of them have been destroyed. How how did they get destroyed? There was one that was recently destroyed in uh, the summer of 2017, and Ooh. it was on protected land behind a fence, and it still got destroyed. So you know we have the more we can educate people about these, the more eyeballs can be put on them, so that they can be protected. You know by people who care about protecting these kinds of things. They're not making any more of them, <laughs> you know, right. and so there are probably as many that have been destroyed as what I have found records for. Uh, I'm just taking a guess, um, but 
you know, and, and there are still ones being found that have not been previously documented even today. Uh, and I, and I talk about some that have been found recently. So it's, it's, uh, it's a struggle to, to, to get people to understand, uh, you know, this is a, not an aspect of archaeology that archaeologists seem to be that much interested in. Um, but there are quite a few of them out there and, uh, you know, I did my best to document them as, you know, Okay, and, and as thoroughly as I could. Yeah, Jeff, and you know, when, when Haley's on in a few minutes, uh, you know, she's going to be talking a little bit about this Indiana one that she's been studying. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there was uh, another one in Ashland, Kentucky, another one in southwestern West Virginia. So, you know, there are a, a few others in the Ohio River, uh, you know, drainage. Um, I, I was I was just involved in an effort to preserve another one in the county adjacent to Serpent Mound in Adams County. The county to the west is Highland County, and there oh, was a okay. Serpent Mound there. And uh, in the last uh, six months, there was an effort by a comp- an energy company to build a 3,500-acre solar panel farm. And it just so happened that part of the serpent extended into the project boundary. And so I had to go and give, you know, legal testimony uh, to identify that this existed, identify the sources that, I, I, you know, existed. We went out there, documented the serpent, you know, followed the course of it and traced it all out and took pictures. And it was, a, it was an effort. Um, but, you know, it's not on protected land it's on private property and private property owners can do whatever they want with that property and so you know we wanted to make sure that the company knew it was there and the state knew it was there so that they could make adjustments and hopefully that at least the section that falls into that project boundary will get preserved jeff with all these uh serpent effigies that uh, you know, we're ta- talking about um, is the Serpent Mound the the most uh, complex engineered out of uh, all these that you know, you've yeah you know, the ninety five that you've studied. So here, here's what I'll. I'll say about your question. First of all, the Serpent Mound in Adams County is not very well studied. (laughs) And that's the most famous of them all. Mm -hmm. Um, There has only been a handful of archaeological studies that have ever been done at the the site. Uh, It's it's not very well uh, documented. And the most that people have documented have not been professional archaeologists to have documented what is there. Most professional archaeologists seem to like shrug their shoulders or something. They don't pay too much attention to it. So the fact that they don't pay too much attention to this sir, the serpent man, that's the most famous one. They've paid much, much less attention to all the remaining ones. Um, so I'll give you one example. Uh, there was a serpent mound 
in Warren County, Ohio, which is to the west of Adams County, outside of Cincinnati. And that serpent mound was larger than the serpent mound in Adams County. But there was some efforts to document its design in the up through the 1950s. And based on the diagrams that were done in the 1950s, it appears that that serpent mound has all the same solar alignments that the serpent mound in Adams County has. Now, we can't really do a lot of the work that needs to be done to confirm any of that because that serpent got destroyed in the 1970s because the uh, Ohio Historical Society refused to protect that site. The landowner wanted to sell the property to the Ohio Historical Society for the whopping sum of $700. And the Historical Society basically said, thanks, we already have a serpent mound. We don't need another one. And so a gravel company bought the site, and by the 70s, they got tired of people coming out there to see the serpent, and they just bulldozed it. So, you know, it's, it's incumbent upon every one of us to try to do whatever we can in whatever state we are to go find these serpents and encourage them, you know, the communities that they're in to preserve them as much as they can because we don't really know what we don't know about them, right? Almost all of them have been barely documented. Like th- th- there may not even be photographs of all of these you know you sometimes you just get some drawings of them and uh so it's it's we're 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 right at the beginning of really starting to put our arms around what was really going on with all of these serpent effigies being built across north america okay uh that's you're making a great case for uh you know the historic preservation uh, of these sites. Uh, you know we're all all for that, and I, I'm sure that all the great people who are going to be there are also on board with, uh, you know, the, the the same sentiment. It and what's uh, you know we're down to like four four minutes or so, four or five minutes. Uh, it's so, and you know, when people arrive, they're going to be what signs from. Uh, yeah, there's signage all around the area. There will be signage at Serpent Mound directing people there. The festival is actually on the adjacent property to Serpent Mound, but you can walk right over to it from Serpent Mound. There's a gate in between the, the two properties, and the gate will be open. Uh, so it, it, the property is uh, Soaring Eagle Retreat is the name of the property. But uh, if you just go to Serpent Mound and park there, you can you know make your way easily enough uh, over to it. It's like okay. a you know, hundred yard walk. Yeah. Um, from the parking lot, it's probably a shorter walk to get to the festival than it is to get to Serpent Mound. Okay. Well, yeah, it, yeah. That 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 does sound right. So it's, uh, but it's. It, uh, you know, going to be a lot of uh, fun, 
great speakers. What uh, so Ross is going to be there, and he he Ross was Hamilton is planning yeah. on being there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Tom and Terry and Jim Miller and there's going to be a whole range of people. What I would say is, if you want to see the schedule of all of the eventing that's taking place and all the speakers, you can go to serpentmound.org. And you can find all that information, or you can find there's an event page on Facebook. That's F O S M for Friends of Serpent Mound uh, Summer Solstice Celebration, and uh, you can find find the Friends of Serpent Mound on Facebook or that special event page. Uh, either way, or just go to serpentmound.org, and uh, you can get all that information. Cool. And again, uh, you know. It, it, everything uh, is uh, free uh, for the public. The festival is free. So. Okay, it's e- e- easy to find. Uh, great, great location. It's uh, it's a it's about an hour and a half drive from Cincinnati. It's about an hour and a half drive from Dayton. It's about an hour and a half drive from Columbus. Uh, you know, so. Any of the major cities there, it's a, it's a relatively easy drive from. If you're coming from Louisville, it's like you know maybe two and a half hours or from Lexington. You know, you're in West Virginia. It's probably a couple hour drive for you. Yeah, well, it sounds like a, a great time. And you know, when I've been there, uh, you know, just a lot of uh, terrific people, and you know, just, we. Wish you luck on that one. I hope the weather stays nice and it. it yeah, we don't it really have a long is a great range forecast yet, but uh, you know, usually at this time of the year, if we do get some kind of rain, it's usually just you know for a short period of time. Yeah. We've always had, um, you know, almost magical weather for the solstice. Uh, last year, we had a short uh, rain shower just around sunset. And it produced a rainbow that lasted for about 20 minutes. And uh, wow. I took some amazing pictures of this rainbow that was there. So, you know, you never know uh, what you're going to see. Even if the weather turns out to be a little rainy, sometimes that's magical too. Okay. And are, are uh, people allowed to bring drones? So you're talking about taking drones to film at Serpent Mound. Yeah. So Serpent so the the Ohio Historical can Ohio History Connection is their name now. Um, they have a drone policy. You have to apply for a permit. Oh, I didn't know. And and so uh, it goes to a committee and they will decide on whether or not to grant your permit. Um, I would say that they would not grant a permit for the summer solstice because of the number of people there. It becomes a safety issue, right? Uh, if oh, you okay. crash your drone into somebody, um, Don't so I, chances are probably not. But uh, it, it, you know, just generally for people that are interested in taking their drone out there, you are uh, expected to get a permit from the Ohio History Connection. Okay, well, I, I, I just want, wanted to know. It, Okay, and start uh, uh, wrapping things up with you and bringing on Dennis and Haley. Uh, is there anything else you want to cover? 
Oh, I think that's good. Uh, thanks for uh, the invitation to talk about the event. Yeah, and you know, we'll have uh, you know, we just kind of ran out of time. We didn't even get to the crop circles. Have, have, have yeah, any? Will always be another day. <laughs> yeah, have, have any appeared? Uh, I have had one report so far this year up in Wisconsin, but it's unconfirmed as of right now. Um, so it was just a small single circle, maybe. It hasn't been, like I said, it hasn't been confirmed yet. So. Okay. All right. And um, waiting for Dennis to answer. Hey, Mike, I'm here. How you oh, doing? Okay. There, there he is. There, there's one of our uh, next guests. Hey, uh, Jeff, Jeff, have you met Dennis? I don't believe so. Uh, Jeff, uh, this is Dennis Stone. Dennis, this is Jeff Wilson. It's, uh, nice to meet you. I have been to your America's Stonehenge. Uh, I was there a few years ago. Uh, I gave a lecture on the East Coast, and and one of the tours uh, there went to America's Stonehenge. So I have I had a chance to visit there. Oh, that's great, Jeff. Yeah, nice to uh, nice to hear from you. Yeah, uh, I was flying up to about three and a half years ago, so I may have been on the road when you visited. So, uh, yeah, nice to hear from you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, really, really intriguing sight that you got there. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, and i got to get out the Serpent Mile. I used to fly into Columbus all the time, but uh, short overnights and long days, we didn't get a chance to see too much. I wanted to go to Newark and then to that site for sure, but we'll get out yeah. here now that I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, if you do make your way out this way, uh, let me know. I can give you a tour. Oh, that'd be great. Thank you so much. Looking forward to it. Sure. Yeah, yeah Dennis, uh, that'd be uh, worth uh, taking Jeff up on that one. I oh. think so. Definitely. Just yeah. got to get the wife going, but uh, definitely, yes, absolutely. That's something I've been on my bucket list for years. That'd be great. Okay. And let's see, do we have Haley here? Yes, Haley is here. Okay, and uh, Haley, Haley uh, you know Jeff. Yes, of course, I know Jeff. Okay. Hi, hi okay. Haley. How you doing? Good, good. It was so nice to meet you this spring. We got the special tour at Serpent Mountain from Jeff, and I definitely recommend it if anybody gets the chance to go, Jeff. I'll be giving two tours this uh, at the at the summer solstice, so if anybody wants to take advantage of. Oh. Okay. Well, uh, uh, it, uh, it, 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 this almost sounds more like a uh, uh, show's becoming more of a family reunion than. And, <laughs> and, and, well, it's a small, it's a small community, of, you know, of yeah. enthusiasts, right? So yeah, we yeah. Tend, tend to cross paths often. Yeah, if you want, if you want to stay on, uh, that's fine with me. It's, you know, we all all, all, all know each other, but. Yeah, you know, I just uh, you know want to introduce. Well, I'll certainly I'll certainly listen in. I'm 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 curious to hear uh, what uh, what what your guests are going to talk about. If I have any questions, uh, I'll I'll maybe jump in. Okay. Oh, that uh, 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 that's uh, that's fine. I just want to uh, do do the introduction and we'll get talk about a little bit more uh, serpent effigies uh, found in other parts of the country. So, um, 
um, you know, so we have another one of our prehistoric experts, uh, Dennis Stone, returning. Uh, you, you saw him on the inaugural season of Scott Walters' America Unearthed, and, and Dennis is the owner of America's Stonehenge, uh, and he is bringing his intrepid protege, Haley Ramsey, for her worldwide debut. Uh, we're so glad she chose Nightlight as a form to get her first NSA file. She's one of uh, you know, the Cornelius types who believes the that there are too many Dr. Zayas's blowing up caves in the Forbidden Zone. So uh, Haley's been doing some international travel and is nearing the uh, uh, you know, having her uh, a book, The Bringers of Life, The Cosmic History of the Divine Feminine, uh, almost to publication. Hopefully it's going to be out soon. And uh, you know, Haley's also studying a, another serpent mound in the Ohio Valley. So uh, welcome, Dennis and Haley. Oh, thank you, Mark. And hi, Haley. <laughs> hi, Dennis, and thank you, Mark, for having me. Oh, yeah, so, um, yeah, it, okay, we just heard a little bit about the most famous of these serpent effigies. You know, we heard a little bit uh, from, from uh, Jeff about, uh, you know, the destruction of, uh, you know, uh, another serpent mound. You got, you know, you know, we know that there are a few others out there. You know, we uh, you know, mentioned the Ashland oil one. Uh, but, uh, um, Haley, you've been a- a- examining a serpent mound in Indiana. Can you tell us a little bit about your research and you know uh, what you've you know what's the condition of this mound? Right, right. So this this mound is found about an hour west of Cincinnati. Um, it, it's a really old site, obviously, but what makes it difficult now is that it's on private property, and the people that own this property didn't even really know it was there and they've been farming over it for decades so that makes it a little bit hard to examine and to find but um we did go out there once and actually the first time we went out there we went to the wrong location we thought we'd found the serpent and we were actually trespassing and we thought we had permission to be on that property and it was not the right property at all so um later on we found out that uh where the actual property was and the way that we found out about this site existing at all in indiana um, is actually from a book by Fritz Zimmerman, and he was going through some LIDAR and found anomalies. And when he found these anomalies, he took this big road trip, you know, and went searching for them all over. And he was the one that documented it first. And so we were looking um, for it, and it's there. We're working on a documentary right now about it. We're trying to get more research done this summer. We're going to spend a lot of time out there, but the condition of it is kind of rough. Um, it's, it's barely visible at this point. So it would take a lot of work to go out there and actually find find how it might have originally been sitting. But based on what we can see now, it seems to have the same directional orientation as the Serpent Mound in Adams County. And interestingly enough, um, Jeffrey brought up the whole the Serpent Mound that existed in Warren County. And Fritz's book, 
he mentions that it might have been similar to that serpent mound. So that's an interesting the, connection there. Yeah, are are the dimensions similar between the one in Indiana and the serpent uh, the uh, uh, Serp, serpent mound in Peebles, Ohio? That's a good question, and we're still working on getting you know getting all that figured out. I need to get out there and get hands on and spend the whole day out there. By the time we found it, it's running out of daylight, and so we need to get out there and actually be hands-on looking at things. But based on the orientation, it could have similar astrological um, alignments, just the strong alignments there, just like at Serpent Mound in Peebles, Ohio, which has tons of alignments. And so if we look at it the same way and it has the same directional orientation, it's possible it also has those, the same alignments. Okay. And... Yeah, you are uh, going out there into the field with you know a, a lot of training in an archaeo astronomy program. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit uh, about that training that you uh, you've been um, taking in college? Yes, yes. Um, in college, I have been studying not only archaeoastronomy, but also the science of astronomy, um, astrophysics. And so it's given me kind of a different perspective on things, going from an archaeology course to an archaeoastronomy course to a pure astronomy course. And it's all given me a different perspective, um, looking from each science. And so looking at it that way, um, I've been all over Mexico, of course, and I went with... Um, a group of archaeologists, PhDs, and we went and examined some sites, even got to go see a few sites that were open big sites down in Mexico. And we stayed in the Maya village that was um, Yacuna. And there's a huge, a humongous site out there way out in the jungle. And it too is still being discovered. There's so many sites out there that haven't been discovered. And I got to see people, you know, at work, working on these sites and, you know, conducting their research. And it really inspired me. And it just makes me think about all the sites, like all the lost serpents that we have not found mm -hmm. um, in the Ohio River Valley that are just waiting to be discovered. And there's so much out there. And so I'm, I'm still learning. I would not call myself, you know, uh, um, an expert yet, but hopefully someday I will be. Uh, it's really interesting to, to study, to see how our ancestors were connected to the cosmos and why. Why did they, why did they want to align all of these sites with certain constellations, stars, planets, and et cetera. So to me, I think that it's also, while archaeoastronomy is a science, there's also a degree of spirituality to it. And that's what I like to enjoy looking at. Okay. And you know, Dennis, um, you, you know, you've been on uh, two or three times with us and, uh, it gives a lot of information about the chambers and uh, you know the cairns up there. Uh, you know, some of the uh, uh, standing stones. Uh, but you know, one of the aspects that you are uh, just getting into studying at your property are the serpentine walls. Uh, do we know 
you know, when they were built, are they contemporary with the uh, uh, chambers? Are they later? Is there some kind of uh, connection that might show that you know the serpentine walls were uh, originated up there and moved? You know, to other parts of the country, or you know, are they? Uh, you know, is that idea coming from uh, some other part of what's now the United States, and uh, coming coming to you know the uh, New England area? Uh, you know, what, uh, what do we know about the serpentine walls on uh, your property? Well, Mark, yeah, up to about four years ago, we didn't know about any of the serpentine walls whatsoever. We knew we had thousands and thousands of feet of walls covering about 110 acres of land. And my dad passed away about 10 years ago, and before he did, he got involved with looking at the walls, studying them, measuring them, kind of investigating them. And um, he was actually with another gentleman from Penn State who was a doctor of astronomy, uh, Dr. Winkler, and he began working with us about 20 years ago. He had been at Penn State since 1964 as an astronomer professor. And uh, he got involved with the site, and he did work there about five years before he suddenly passed away. But the two of them would go out there and look at the walls. And it, my dad told me a number, a number of times that he thought the walls were as important as the main site. However, he never did um, see that some of these walls are actually what we call serpent walls. And that wasn't until about three years ago when I retired from the airlines. I had a little more time on my hands, and I was out there doing some cleaning. And I happened to notice one particular wall. It was straight. It was about 30 feet long. It was on the side, ridge of bedrock, actually. And I looked at it, and I used to go by it all the time and really not pay too much attention. But I got off my – I think it was on my ATV, and I walked over to it about 50 feet. And I looked at it, and I said, this wall is out in the middle of nowhere. It's not, it's not doing anything. It's not like a farmer's wall. It has slabs of stone. And um, it seemed to have a head, and when I went to the other side of it, about 30 feet away, it seemed to have like a flat tail, and the whole thing has kind of a, a shape that tapers down to the tail, if you would, and it looked like a serpent. I, I wasn't familiar with that. I knew about the Great Serpent Mound out west and several other mounds out there, but I was not aware of anything in New England having a serpentine or a serpent kind of shape to it. So uh, that was the first one I found, and then after that, I spotted a couple other walls that really caught my attention, too. They they seem to have a head, a body, and a tail. They're not like farmer's walls, which are linear and go great distances, you know, and cont contain a lot of field stones. These seem to have slabs of stone, and they end with a kind of a boulder, but they start with kind of a big head. And so over the last three years, we found what we believe are about 12 serpentine walls. And the longest one is, we think, 2,550 feet long. It begins at the Watch House, one of the first papers mm. you'll visit when you get to the site. And it is a glacial erratic. It's a big boulder. And if you look at it, it looks like the head of a serpent, perhaps. But behind it, the wall undulates. It goes up and down. And the first hump is actually a November 1st alignment, one of the cross-quarter days. The stone itself is a cross-quarter day also, the head. It's a February 1st uh, cross-quarter day. But this wall, we started looking at it, and it goes around and touches every astronomical uh, foresight alignment. You have a backsight and a foresight, you know, on an astronomical alignment, you need two points. And it touches every one of our monoliths, and it comes back counterclockwise, comes back in front of the uh, what would be the head. It does another hump, which we always notice, but we never put two and two together. 
and then it comes in a 90-degree twist with a capered tail, and it looks like it's biting its tail, like the Ouroboros, they call it. So we think we have about 12 of these, and most of them are straight. We do have a beautiful curved one, and uh, that one there is near the winter solstice sunset monolith, and we opened that clearing up in 1967. Uh, about three years later, we opened up the uh, the trail to, to actually uh, to, that people can actually walk on, and they'd be walking by that for decades and never really noticing that this beautiful S-shaped serpent, which is about 160 feet long, and we cleared the brush, we've opened it up, and when people go by it now, we're starting to have visitors actually come down and tell us about it, you know. We haven't updated our tour guide map, so it's not on that, but it is on our diorama when you come into our building. Um, we started finding that these serpents are throughout New England. Um, in Connecticut, there's a uh, town with about 8,000 features, and they claim about 400 serpentine walls, not too far from the um, Rhode Island border. And in Rhode Island, they have a few of these, and they usually kind of curvilinear. The ones in this town are mostly straight or linear. There's a few rectilinear ones. And the longest one I think they have there is about 300 feet long, and they're absolutely beautiful-looking serpents. Um, and they're finding a few in um, Massachusetts. I know Haley was out in the western part and saw a couple, and, and one she saw actually has these little stone windows, and we have a couple of those too, these beautiful lintel windows right inside the wall. They make no sense uh, unless there's something to do with spiritualism, you know, like a portal or something like that. Uh, a couple of ours do, in fact, one of them has uh, four windows kind of adjacent to each other. And there'd be no purpose for a farmer or, in this case, the guy that was up on our site, a shoemaker, to do something like that. And we're starting to find these in Colorado, Alabama, and, um, you know, not just and they're in New York, too, out near Woodstock, in the Bethel, Monticello area. And on the Hudson River, they found more up in up, uh, Westchester and Putnam County. So they seem to be kind of a north. They're in the northeast, but they do go right across the country. And I believe there's about 94 earthen serpents out west, too. But ours are like stone walls. And one in Indiana, where Haley's going to be, I think, this summer, actually was in the water. And I got a picture from 100 years ago, and it looks just like our S-shaped serpent. But it's in, in the White River, and I'm not sure that it still exists. So Haley's going to try to get out there and see if it's there and take some photographs of it. Okay. And uh, Haley, uh, you know, Dennis was just talking about uh, these uh, stone windows. You know, he sent me uh uh, a couple photos uh, of them, and you know, they are very uh, you know, uh, uh, mysterious. Um, you, know, you you are uh, Native American. What's yeah? Is there something from the folklore that? You know of that could help us to understand the function of these uh, uh, stone windows. Yes, um, speaking to some aunts and uncles, I have heard various different stories in the folklore. But one of them being that they were actually points of energy, and they were access points to the underworld. And these access okay. points to the underworld could either be um, positive or negative they could be allowing good spirits to come through or bad spirits and in a lot of these prayer windows which is what they call them they were places where they would put offerings um, or they would put things to help protect themselves from the the evil spirits in the underworld or um, they would put offerings there for the benevolent spirits and interestingly enough in a lot of these spirit windows or prayer windows 
they actually also have a stopper stone or a blocker stone, and they have it in the bottom on the actual ground, almost aligning directly with parallel with the top stone making the window. And this was used to keep all of the bad spirits in the underworld and to keep them from coming up into our, our world. Hmm. And okay. if I may say, I think, Haley, you sure. saw a couple of those at our site, right? You saw a couple of those. You, you actually noticed that I, at our site, I think, right? Yes, I did. I did point out that there were some stopper stones there. Um, also, I noticed at one or two of the spirit windows, just for kicks, I was looking on my program at the archaeoastronomy of the site to see if there's any alignment that could be possible with spirit windows. But it just really doesn't make sense to me because, but you know, most of the things the ancients did don't make sense to us now anyway. But a lot of these spirit windows are aligned with the solstice or with some kind of, um, you know, astronomical event, and it doesn't make sense to me because to see to see that alignment, you'd have to be laying flat on your stomach, you know, and mm. looking right through that window to see it rise. Now, it could have been something. If, if this was the case, there could have been during prayer sometimes, you know. Native Americans will lay to thank Mother Earth. When they're praying to Mother Earth, they will lay on their stomachs um, to thank Mother Earth and pray to her. And so it's possible that they were used during ceremony. Um, but there's no evidence to back this up, and I don't really have a whole lot of answers from aunts and uncles in the Native American um, culture that give me answers on that. So it's still an enigma. It's still something that we're trying to understand. Okay. And, and Dennis, you know, since you know we're just over a couple weeks away from the actual solstice, are you going to send Cat over the hill to uh, you know look look through the uh, prayer window, or you know, do you have like you know? Uh, plans to uh, observe uh, the uh, solstice, sunrise, and sunset from uh, uh, near these um, prayer windows or the uh, serpent or the serpentine uh, uh, walls? Well, one of the problems are the the woods mark as you know you've been up there and there's quite a bit of woods you know so uh you can use uh, some of the apps on phones to get the you know the uh the azimuth to see if it is correct for that alignment and, and Haley was doing a little bit of that there when she was up which is pretty cool and other people have done that too um and um yeah we i mean we're definitely are interested in that because we'll be watching the normal you know sunrise over the monolith and the sunset mm-hmm. over the monolith and you know, we have some activities going on, but uh, we I'm sure we're going to have people up there, too, with some of the apps looking at it. And that would be a great thing for them to do, you know, because with the apps, the trees, you know, it doesn't matter if the trees are there or not, you know. And that would be a, a really kind of a neat thing to do because you can do that any time of the year with the apps, too, you know. You just got to, you know, program it and you can make the uh, make it work for any time of the year, the moon or the sun or the stars. It's pretty cool technology. So, uh, but we are going to do a forest pro, uh project up there we're going to thin the forest open up all the alignments and for the first time we're going to open up the uh the lunar major north and south standstills we've never opened them up since we started clearing the trees in 1967 so next winter that program will begin and we've got approval to do the whole thing and uh and we're going to open up the south alignment and a couple other alignments that we haven't opened because it's thousands of feet of trees that you have to 
open up and we're going to make the forest, you know, thinner, nicer. And it's done with a licensed forester who works for the state of New Hampshire and everything. So it's all, it's going to be done properly. And we're going to try to back the trees away from some of the structures because that causes a lot of damage. And um, also from the stone walls, you know, and then we'll be able to get better aerial shots of these walls from above. They won't be blocked by the trees. So, yeah, I mean, in the future, we'll be able to see some of these alignments better for sure. Hey, can I jump in here real quick? Sure, Jeff. Hey, Dennis, um, have you done any LIDAR survey of your site? Yeah, Jeff, we've uh, used, I know they finished the country, I think, in 2018, the whole U.S. has done. So the LIDAR we have, I think, isn't the latest. I think it's from about six or seven years ago, so the fidelity wasn't that good. We ha- One thing I'd like to see is that Worldview 3 satellite imaging, too, they're using, you know. Uh, that looks really promising. And But the LIDAR is good, though. I mean, the LIDAR strips off the trees, which is wonderful, you know. But I don't think we have the yeah, latest, I, so, we're, we're, yeah, we need to get that, you know. <laughs> I just wondered if you were able to map out all your walls mm-hmm. from using the LIDAR. Um, That's a so, great second, point. They do show – yep, go ahead. Sorry, second thing I was going to mention is I, I've been to a number of sites, particularly in Wisconsin, that, that there are some stone effigies there. And um, one of the critical things is if you're going to have a forester in there to you know, take down trees and stuff, you have to really emphasize do not move any of the stones. Yeah, right? I, don't know how, I don't know how many – I don't know how many stones you've already had moved there in the past, right? You've probably had some structures that have been reconstructed partially or moved certain things around. But whatever you've got remaining, don't move the stones, right? That's the, that's no, the important right. thing. That's that's great advice. Yeah, and anybody who's listening, I know they did a project at that town in Connecticut that had, you know, uh, about 8,000 features. And they just did something similar. And um uh, from what I get, the feedback I get is they did a wonderful job. The, the people that were doing it were very, very careful around the stones. But he's going to mark every tree, and they're going to uh, highlight every feature, whether it's a quarry site or a standing stone or wall. And the guy that's working for us loves the site, and he doesn't want anything touched, just like you said. you know. And the walls are mostly pristine. They haven't really been damaged except in a couple places. I think some logging took place in the 1870s by a guy named Nathaniel H. Paul. And he may have caused a little bit of damage, you know. But for the most mm-hmm. part, the walls are pretty much intact, which is good, you know. So, yes, yeah. that's that's great. We want to protect it as much as possible. We don't want trees uprooting and causing damage, falling on the walls right. either, you know. So we're going to kind of manage that. But that's great advice, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, one one question I've had since I've visited the site once before is um, how – certain are you that these are Native American constructions versus, let's say, a diffusionist idea that, you know, I know that there's a, a book that was written back in the 40s called The Ruins of Great Ireland in New England that talked about the site, William Goodwin's book, um, oh, that he, right. yeah. you know, mm-hmm. he thought it was a, you know, uh, kind of a European kind of construction thing uh, and compared it to a lot of stuff in Ireland and things like that. What, what is your sense of based on whatever evidence that you've been able to glean so far from the site? Is it, is it, are you finding native American stuff there? We have found uh, some native, uh, like a glacial cliff shelter, which is on the West side of the site. We found pottery back about 60 years ago it was middle woodland period pottery. That's on okay. display in the building. 
Then we found a yeah. wigwam site down by the parking lot about 30 feet in diameter back in 1992. Uh, two fire pits. They sent the uh, charcoal to the Whitshall Oceanographic Institute for mass acceleration spectrometry, I guess. And the dates came back 2,000 and 1,700 years old. We're thinking it was a winter camp versus a summer camp on both sides of the hill. And in the parking lot area, we also found a cooking rack. So we think the parking lot area is kind of covering uh, what was a camp, an encampment at one time, about 2,000 years ago, roughly. But we think the site's 4,000 years old. And the earliest date we have is of a fire pit near the North Stone. It doesn't date stone features, but it appears to be a fire pit. And they dated that to the Middle Archaic, about 7,400 years old, plus or minus, I think it was 250 years or maybe something like that. And um, so he had human activity going on the hill as early as that. I mean, the structures to me look very European. You know, the, the V-huts, the size, the size, the shape, and the orientation is the same as what I've seen in Ireland in the wedge tombs. The, uh, in Spain, they have the same kind of structures. They call them dolmens, but they're really not dolmens. But the same, you look right, at the pictures, right. they're almost identical. The size, the orientation out of true north, and the shape. The uh, east-west chamber looks like the gallery graves I've seen in France. They're also in Holland. They call them the Giant's Bed, and they're also in uh, Ireland. We didn't get to that part of Ireland. But there's other features mm-hmm. on the site that have a real European flavor to them. Mr. Goodwin thought the site was Viking, but as he uncovered a lot of the debris over a couple of years, he said, well, it's not Viking. He thought it was Irish called monk, and he died still believing yeah. that in 1950, a few years after he wrote the book. But about 800 sites from Quebec all the way down to Pennsylvania, stone sites, and uh, we're not saying Native Americans weren't involved with that. In fact, one time they did say that because mainstream said there are no ancient stone ruins built by Native Americans in the Northeast, and that may, that may be incorrect. They built them right. everywhere else on our continent. Why not here? So right yeah. now it's kind of like I think we're not – we don't have conclusive evidence either way. We're kind of keeping our mind open, but there is definitely seems to be an old world <clears throat> influence, uh, a megalithic influence it seems, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, that, that's just sort of a. It's almost like a fundamental question to ask about about that particular mm-hmm. site, um, because you know you can talk about it as being related to having these serpent effigies that that seems to indicate that maybe it's North American, uh, you know, Native American. Mm-hmm. But then you have this sort of architecture that seems to be maybe you know prehistoric European instead. So it's it's kind of a kind of a weird gray area, and I just wondered if you know what the latest stories were. So you haven't actually like had an excavation of one of the walls to see if you could find any any you know carbon dating or any material in there that could shed light on that either way. Well, they have in the they have in the past, yeah. I mean, we took twelve carbon dating for the site. Uh, most of them inside what we call the main site. You probably remember the chain link fences. But what we'd yeah. like to do, and I don't know how this is going to work is optically stimulated luminescence. Some people believe it doesn't work in the Northeast because of the weathering conditions, but um, they have been doing some structures in the Northeast using that, you know, they actually date the soil. It's indirect dating, of course, but I think if that works, that would be a great way. It's so expensive though. I think it's several thousand dollars uh, because you have to have a few baseline samples in the main one that you take by the wall. And they have done a couple in New England. If that works, I think, because you don't find charcoal everywhere. I mean, there is charcoal. There's horizons of charcoal on the site, but you may not find it near the wall to help date it. But that might be technology that might be able to, in the future, prove you know the age of the walls, perhaps. You know. Well, you might be able to date the layer of soil directly underneath the rock wall 
if there is a layer of soil under the rock wall, right? They're usually sitting on bedrock um, everywhere we tested. Yeah, they're, they're on really? bedrock pretty okay. much. You know? Yeah, pretty okay. much. Yeah, I mean, there may be a few. Yeah, everywhere we tested, it seems like the hill was bare. We did about 70 shovel test pits across the hill. It was the president of New Hampshire Archaeological Society. She's still with us after 30 years, and she's still doing some of that. And her husband was a doctor of geology at Tufts University for 30 years, so she used him for the geological data analysis and all that. Basically, after all of that, six years, she said, I think the hilltop is about 75% bare, 25% covered with soil 4,000 years ago, was just an estimate and using her husband's knowledge too, you know. So everything's on bedrock up there. The structures, the walls. You may want to check out, uh, there are some serpent effigies as well as a bunch of other Native American uh, stone effigies in White Shell Provincial Park up in Alberta. That is oh, okay. still on the bare bedrock, and uh, they uh, may have some, you know, uh, some methodologies that that might be able to help you in in, in what you're studying, since they're you, they're uh, dealing with that, stuff that's yeah. that's straight on the bare rock. Oh, uh, that's like us. That, that's great. That's great information. That maybe we can uh, check with those folks and see if how they're dating it. You know. Uh, I know if you have a horizon of charcoal and you have the stratigraphy right up against the wall, and that's what we've been finding, you know, up from zero soil up to like 18 inches, I think, on, you know, and if you can find a horizon of charcoal, you date that level and it hasn't been disturbed next to the wall, you probably get kind of an idea how long the wall's been there. But, um, yeah, that takes a lot of money and effort. We have been trying to do that, you know. And, right, right. You know, I think more of that definitely got to be done, though, yeah. Some of the walls are just sitting on, on bedrock today, so there's no soil next to them, but. Hey, Haley. You know when you were visiting with uh, Dennis recently, uh, you you probably saw the 14-foot menhire that toppled over and is broken into uh, three sections, and there's uh, another sample of uh, some other larger uh, slabs uh, that were quarried. Uh, maybe they were put in place. Uh, maybe they were just moved to locate the, the, the location where they were supposed to be uh, stood up, but uh, they that just never happened for uh, whatever reason. Uh, Haley, it, with your archaeoastronomy uh, training, uh, have you come to any conclusions about what uh, some of these individual larger slabs could could have been used for? You know, were there, you know, were they on uh, uh, probably going to be put in place for some kind of alignment? Well, there's actually tons and tons of slabs of stones around the world that seem to be, you know, in the middle of an area for no reason. And especially I saw this in France. I saw this in Ireland. I saw this in Mexico. I saw this in Peru. Um, and it, it was really bizarre because we, and they're called lazy stones because they are quarried and there's rags miles, but then all of a sudden they just, you know, they just leave them there. Like they, they don't use them and they're, they're not these small rocks that are easy to, to move. They are huge and they weigh, you know, many times. It's not like it's just, you know, easy to move something and then give up on it like why why would they do that 
And that's something that really boggles my mind. And I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. And it was things like dragging them, you know, across the river six miles and then up, up halfway halfway up this hill and then just stopping right there and they're almost to the top why why stop right there and that's uh, that's another interesting question none of the ones that i've seen have any have had any kind of alignment but my favorite stone slab at um, america stonehenge of course is what's known as the sacrificial table and um, going back to what jeff was asking earlier about there maybe being a european um, feel to this place and was it really native americans or was it actually europeans I've actually been doing a lot of research on, on the connection between, um, you know, cultures at this time period, thousands of years BC. And what's interesting to me is that the sacrificial table that's found, this, this whole site that's found in New England is not really found anywhere else. You can't find any other site like that in the entire country, as far as I know. I mean, there might be something that we haven't found that's on someone's private property and they just don't want to tell us. But as far as we know, there's no other sites that resemble American Stonehenge in this way. And that's what makes it unique, especially because it does have that European feel to it. Um, this, this sacrificial table is certainly um, a table that you don't see, you know, every day um, at ancient sites like this. And the table, I think, could have been used for sacrifice, and it was definitely placed there for a reason. Um, and it could have been used for ritual birthing, even. And I was speaking with um, with the gynecologist actually this week about birth and how likely it would have been that they may have used it for, you know, ritual birthing. Uh, it has a groove carved out into it to channel blood, and there is a um, groove that goes down. It would flow out and probably into a basin. There's a cut in the rock beneath the flow of the groove where it probably would gather liquid fluids, um, whether it was, you know, death or birth, which to the ancient people, usually birth and death uh, went hand in hand. When you die one life, you're born in another. So it makes sense for the two to be connected, and there's definitely enough fluid in childbirth for them to use it uh, for that purpose to collect the fluid. Now, I think that there, I don't think there's any kind of alignment that I'm aware of. I could be wrong, Dennis, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's any kind of alignment with the actual sacrificial table. But what there is, is an oracle chamber beneath it. And if you go into the chamber behind and below the sacrificial table, you can speak through this tunnel and it almost, this, this chamber, and it sounds like very, very eerie. It sounds like a god almost, if you're going to yell through it, it's very loud. And the sound comes out beneath the sacrificial table, almost like if there is, um, you know, a child being born or, uh, you know, someone being killed. It might be the God speaking that they're sacrificing or, you know, whoever, whatever's going on in the situation, there might be a shaman behind there calling out if he's a God. And that's just really interesting to me because we don't see that throughout the United States. And it's not too far inland, you know, compared to the rest of the continent. It's, it's, not, it's not impossible that ancient cultures came here and got to that point, you know, after coming into the, the Northeast and deciding, okay, we're going to set up, you know, ceremonial camp here. And there is evidence of pre-Columbian cultures like the um, Phoenicians even being there. There's inscriptions that are, you know, there's Ogham. There's all kinds of stuff connecting it to other ancient cultures that are not North American. And what fascinates me with the Phoenician connection there in the Serpentine Walls even, going back, the ancient Phoenicians were one of the first cultures to have a massive um, serpent goddess worshiping religion and this, this religion spread and found in Croatia actually which is not popular it's actually on private property there is another sacrificial table a sacrificial altar dedicated to a serpent goddess of the ancient Phoenicians and so that's really really interesting too um, there's connections all over the place but it, it would make sense to me too if, if even these these serpent effigies found there were not in fact Native American but may have been 
Phoenician. They might have come here. And what connects also the goddess and the serpent is the stone we found there. But we haven't had it tested to see if it, we haven't been able to determine completely if it's, you know, a natural formation or not. But it appears to be the view of a pregnant woman from the side. You can see the angle of her back and her buttocks in the front. You can see her breasts and a pregnant belly. And so if it was, you know, just Mother Nature at her finest, that's incredible and it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. But if not, then it was man-made and it would make sense if this was the Phoenicians bringing their serpent goddess worship to North America. Hmm. Okay. It's uh, some new information that you're bringing to the interpretation of the site. Dennis, do you think that yeah, you know, since there are some of the you know, examples of the lazy stones, like Haley said, that uh, you know, have been found at the uh, at, at your property, do, do you think um, America's Stonehenge could have been? In the process of being enlarged, you know, maybe incorporating some of the imagery that uh, Haley was just speaking about to be a much larger complex when it seems like it was uh, suddenly abandoned. Yeah, that's. A, I like that lazy rock uh, slapping. That's pretty good. I hadn't heard that, Haley. That's that's a good. That's a good thing to use for sure. Um, yeah, we. Uh, I think the site, well, originally we thought the site may have been complete. We didn't have any evidence either way, but we thought maybe it was complete, used for quite a while, and then maybe eventually abandoned, you know. Um, but back in 1982, one of our staff people found what we call the first uh, quarry stone. It's still in its quarry socket, actually. And she happened to be sitting out there having lunch one day, and she had been informed by a gentleman named Dr. David Stewart Smith who uh, came on board in 1978. He had been in Europe working on megalithic sites, doing restoration on them for the, uh, for the English, uh, British government. And he came, and he was from Connecticut originally. He went over there for six years, came back, and he didn't know we had these New England stone ruins. And when he came to us, he was quite surprised. But um, he told our staff, look for stones that might be big slabs, like the roof slabs, wall slabs, or even like the sacrificial table. Out in the woods, perhaps, we, he didn't know if there were any, but he said, keep your eye open in case any of these are out there. They might be raised up, and if you look at the edges of them, you might see a serrated edge where somebody had been doing percussion flaking. It's kind of like napping an arrowhead or a spear point, you know, to shape it, and you get the little serrated edge to make it sharper. And so enough, one of our staff members, uh, and she was out there. She was having a picnic. She looked down, and she's sitting on the stone that, she looked at it and said, geez, this stone looks like it's been elevated. So she looked under it and she saw actually a, uh, a rock that actually propped it up like a, it was a regular field stone, about probably a foot and a half across. And the whole stone had been raised off the bedrock and the edge of it looked like it was serrated. So she meant, brought it to the attention of Dr. David Stewart Smith. And the next year he did an excavation and it was overseen by the uh, doctor of um, archaeology, uh, the state archaeologist, actually. So he came down and witnessed it, too, and he said it's unmistakable that the stone was shaped or dressed using percussion flaking technology. It's stone age, not metal age, and it wouldn't have been something that that farmer shoemaker would have been doing. And underneath it, as they excavated, they found all the little flakes of stone that had been, you know, smashed off the stone. So that there was the evidence right there. 
Uh, we knew of just a couple more we found in the 1980s, but just recently, in the last four or five years, we found about 33 of these, and some of these are up to 1,000 feet from the main site. And for the most part, they're still in this socket. They actually have been raised out of the bedrock socket, so they were able to somehow separate the rock from the bedrock. Maybe they worked a fissure or a crack in the rock. They separated it. They raised it. And these are multi-ton stones, and they're still sitting there. In fact, we found one with a cluster of four. Uh, three were raised, and one had actually been removed from its socket, and I think they were in the stage of transporting it. Maybe that's a lazy stone, and they only maybe moved it a few feet. So it came, you know, kind of dawned upon us that I think they had a much bigger project. The site was not complete, and they were still building it. And then the question came up, you know, why did they stop? What happened to this, you know, what happened to this project? You know, why did the people leave this all of a, maybe all of a sudden, perhaps, you know? And that was just in the last three years. And then we started finding the serpentine walls in the window. So all these things kind of came together. But, um, yeah, these are all over the hilltop, and there are about 33 of these today. So these things would have been used for roof slabs and wall slabs, you know, for, uh, for big buildings, basically, you know. So we don't know what they had in mind, but it was probably a bigger, a bigger site than it is today. Well, and Dennis, I think it's interesting, too, that, that it seems to be incomplete. It seems to be almost abandoned. And if it were, I think, in my opinion, based on the archaeological evidence there, based on what we're seeing physically and the inscriptions even and the languages used, it appears to me that there was some kind of Celtic um, group there first that had built these, these megalithic um, chambers there that in the middle of the site. And I think that they might have done that prior to maybe – uh, a Phoenician presence and doing that maybe it was incomplete because by the time the Phoenicians got here there was already people they could have brought disease here the Native Americans that might have you know already been inhabiting the area might not have been you know okay with it and they might have chased them off mm -hmm. they might have been killed mm -hmm. um, you know they might have froze to death who knows what could have happened there's all kinds of variables with what could have happened to those people um, or they could have moved on and gone to another site further inland, maybe Serpa Mount even. I mean, there's no telling what happened back then. So we can only look at the evidence we have, which suggests there is, you know, other, other cultures here besides North American ones. And so those who knows good, what happened. Those are great points, there. yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, the other thing, too, is, uh, you know, the, they may have been over here for resources, too. And, you know, during the, during the Bronze Age, they needed copper, you know. So there's a thought they went... Uh, into the Great Lakes, Mount uh, Isle Royale, you know, and there's like 500,000 tons of copper missing. It ended up somewhere in the world, and that may have been one of the trading goods. But by the time of the Iron Age, roughly 3,000 years ago, um, that, you know, the economy would have changed. You know, maybe it cut off that need to come all the way over here to get copper. I've heard that, too. And as Haley mentioned, you know, war, disease, climate change, those are all things, too. You know, I think climatologists, maybe they could do pollen, you know, pollen tests and check and see if things change climatically, too. But those are great points. But I think the uh, Copper Age could have been, you know, ended the Iron Age, start, uh, the Bronze Age, and then the Iron Age started. Maybe that was one of the reasons they no longer ne needed to come over here. So that was kind of a interesting one I heard, too, you know, just recently. <clears throat> right, right. And I think I think it would be interesting, too, maybe if we could figure out, um, I, I don't know if there's, I didn't hear of, of any local lore or legends really talking about the site, but maybe if, you know, there was native tribes in the area that could offer insight that might have stories or legends or something of the sort that might be insightful, too. But I think that what really interests me, though, is that the fact that the site is there. And I don't, in my opinion, I haven't seen any other sites like this in North America that resemble this at all. I mean, it's just so, so mm. different and just so unique. And I think that maybe, you know, if there, were, if there was another culture here, like 
Uh, the Phoenicians, for example, or any other culture, really, the Phoenicians were famous for seafaring, uh, you know, being a seafaring culture. And on their coin, there's even evidence of, you can see there's a map of all the continents they've been to. And of course, there's what looks like the Gulf of Mexico, North America um, there. And if they did come here, just like they went to Crete, just like they went to Croatia, just like they went to all these places, they didn't just take everybody with them and go. People were colonizing. People were staying at these places all around the Mediterranean. If they were doing that there, I would assume they would continue that pattern and probably, you know, some people might stay in North America and colonize or maybe marry into the native tribes. And it'd be interesting to see if there's any, you know, DNA evidence if we had somebody that would be willing to do that that was a direct descendant of the natives in the area. Absolutely, yeah. I know that Verrazano got into Narragansett Bay and they found what they, he referred to as, a, uh, I guess you'd call them white Indians. There were some in the tribe that looked very Native American, but others had like blue eyes light-colored, you know, skin, and very tall. And Roger Williams was there about 90 years later, and he reports the same thing. And the Beothucks up in Newfoundland, another group of Native Americans that had some members of their, their, you know, their family that actually had, you know, kind of like lighter in, you know, lighter-toned skin, you know, and some blue eyes. And the Cherokee even talk about that, too. You know, some of their ancestors came across the Great Pond of the Atlantic Ocean. So I think DNA would help that. Uh, definitely. Yes, uh, yes. In oral, in in oral tradition, too. Oral, oral tradition, as you mentioned, definitely. Yeah, we should listen to that. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and so I have a few Cherokee ancestors, not any, you know, that are still alive today, but I've heard legends from my family. Um, and, of course, in my research, I have friends that are Cherokee, too, and they, they have legends in their families about their family being of, you know, Hebrew descent. They're actually one of the some lost tribes that came over here. And the Phoenicians were the, the original, you know, Israelites. They were the original, um, they, they were Judaic people, and they may have come over here. And it, it really is interesting because there's a band in Tennessee that talks about this, and they, they believe firmly that they have roots in, um, you know, Jewish, Jewish history. And they actually even partake, they fly the, the Hebrew flag, and they, they partake in, you know, some Jewish ceremonies even, and they're incorporated into their Native American rituals. But it's just really interesting to think that maybe that's the case. And the Phoenicians were said to have been red-skinned. And even, you know, in, in the Bible, it talks about Adam and Eve. And Adam itself means red man, which could connect either with, you know, North Americans or maybe with the, you know, Middle Eastern um, Mesopotamian people because they were said to have been the same color as the, the clay on up, upstream from the Nile. And so that, that was a red clay. And it's really interesting to, to ask about those um, anomalies and those um, points that in you know Hebrew Adam means red man and then we're talking about the Phoenicians maybe being here maybe the Garden of Eden there's ideas about Serpent Mount even being Garden of Eden um, so there's just so many possibilities yeah Phoenician evidence from North America all the way down to the Periheapistone in, in Brazil you know and in between so many pieces of artifacts inscriptions and coins and everything you know that seem to be old world that shouldn't be here you know across across North Central and South America Yes, and an interesting point, too, about that is um, some of my research led me to see that, well, on, on the island of Crete, the, some, an excavation that occurred in 1903 by an archaeologist named, named Arthur Evans had found um, these statues of a serpent goddess, many of them, not just one, not just two, but several of them. And then all of a sudden we see in, you know, middle America, in Mexico, we see these Aztec and even Mayan um, statues, these idols that are almost identical and I think I showed you a few pictures Dennis and we were like wow you know, it was very similar and the name of that um, Aztec 
mother goddess is what they they said that she was the mother of all humans and that she was the mother goddess. Um, she embodied Mother Earth, etc. And her name um, was Zinteotl, T-Z-I-N-T-E-O-T-L. And so it's really interesting to see that connection there. I mean, with all the evidence that you're just talking about from the tip of you know North America all the way down to South America, it would make sense for them to maybe travel that coastline and introduce you know their their religion, their practices, their architecture, even into societies and civilizations all down, you know, the East coast of the Americas. We have uh, place names in the Northeast too, that are uh, both uh, Gaelic and North American, like uh, Lake Mathemagog, Lake, um, oh, what is it? Uh, we have a uh, Merrimack river, you know, um, we have uh, rivers, uh, mountains and valleys, Kortakichi Gorge and, uh, it just goes on and on with all these names that are both uh, Algonquin and Gaelic, the same word with the same meaning behind it. And uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Barry Fell came up list upon list of these words, you know. And actually out west there were more lists of words. Uh, I think it was Libyan out west, though, the same words in the Native American tongue as in Libyan. And he kept, I got a couple pages of lists of words, the same thing, you know. Uh, it was probably like 100 words, the same, the same thing. And it meant the same thing in both languages, you know, the same, same word, basically. Uh, it, 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 speaking of uh, th- that kind of information about the um, language, you know, similar words, um, it, you know, H- Haley, what do some of the uh, Native American uh, elders uh Think of some of the uh, possibility that the European megalithic builders had come to America. You you have some samples in Squire and Davis where they uh, spoke with some of the um, elders in the 1830s and 40s and yeah, they just said I, you know, my people didn't build this. I, you know, it's it, you know we revere this mound, but um, my people didn't build it. You know, what do the elders think of the possibility of um, some of the European uh, megalithic people may have been in America? Well, interestingly enough, um, that is very true. There are several sites that Native Americans will claim were there before their people arrived. Mm-hmm. Just like there are some, and it varies because you might have a tribe come to Serpent Mound, for example, that's in the area and say, oh, you know, our ancestors built this. But you might have another tribe that says differently. And so it just varies from different, you know, culture, different tribes. But mostly I hear a lot about um, how these Native Americans actually had contact with these tall white people that had red hair um, and black hair even. And so there's really, it's a really interesting connection because they will say that they were here. Just like, you know, in, in, that, in our culture, there's so many stories of star people coming and going all the time. There's stories of, you know, these tall white people with red hair or black hair coming and going and that they, they were very smart and were very advanced technologically and would bring them information. So it's very possible that Europeans were coming over here or maybe were, you know, living here at the time and were exchanging information with them. 
And even the idea for a lot of the native cultures is that Serpent Mound is a point of origin. And I know last year, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, but I think that Australians came to Serpent Mound, right? Australians? Yes, I thought I heard a story. Yeah, yeah, I thought I heard a story about some indigenous Australians coming um, and talking about how in their in their culture they they talk about coming from a serpent, a great serpent or a serpent mound. I'm not sure I've got the details on that, to be honest. Okay, I might have been talking with Terry or somebody else, but it was at the spring um, celebration, and it was I, I could have been you know mis- misunderstanding, but that's what it, I was understanding from what she was telling me. But um, it was really interesting to hear, though, almost every single culture around the world has creation myths uh, pertaining to a serpent. And so, um, you know, lots of people come to Serpent Mount from all over the place, and they basically claim that it's their point of origin, that they come from the snake. And in middle America, we have Quetzalcoatl, we have Tukulcan, and these are all, you know, flying serpent gods. And, of course, in Asia, we have a flying serpent god, you know, the dragon. Um, and so it's all over the world. It's a universal sign of birth, of beginning, of uh, spring, fertility. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see the connection there. And so all of our ancestors seem to see the snake in the same way. You know, you mentioned the, the sort of universal nature of those serpent origins. Uh, the Thunderbird is also a widespread um, origin tradition around the world. There are lots of uh, tales of the Thunderbird throughout Asia, for instance. Um, and the Thunderbird is, of course, related intrinsically with the you know stories of the serpent and the and the Thunderbird together. So, uh, you know, th- there appears to be some ancient source origin for a lot of these uh, a lot of these ancient oral traditions. Absolutely. And that's what's so fascinating is that they're found all over the world. And it, it makes you wonder, was this, was this a story that was passed down that people just started believing? Or did ancestors, you know, witness something flying through the sky that they believed to have brought them here? And, and uh, 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 Haley, that's a, a good point and, and about the you know, universal symbols of uh, dragons and flying uh, snakes and you know, there are also uh, uh, universal symbols uh, uh, found too and they're called clocks and like we're getting down to about the last 90 seconds or so of the show and you know, we need to give Dennis uh, time to plug his site. Uh, Haley, if you want to uh, plug anything, and Jeff, you can go, go, go back over the uh, uh, Friends of the Serpent Mound stuff. So take take it away, and then we'll get cut off by the uh, blog talk English Robo Babe. Is that for me, Mark? Yeah, go ahead, and everyone else yeah. can. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah. Well, I think, thank you all for having me on tonight. Nice talking to you, Jeff and Haley and Mark, and if Bob is there. Uh, yeah, we're yep. going to have the summer solstice. Uh, we'll be, that will be coming up. Uh, we're going to have a, dr- uh, a solstice drumming circle uh, on that day, on the 21st, on Friday. And on Saturday, we'll have another celebration just during the normal business hours. And I have a book coming out 
probably by winter, and um, probably I guess I can turn it over to Haley because she's got a book coming out probably around the same time. Yes, yes, I have a book coming out about the history of the goddess, and it even goes into talk about you know the serpent and the goddess together and how they were always associated together. That will be called The Bringers of Life, The Cosmic History of the Divine Feminine, and I will also be at the Friends of Serpent Mound Summer Solstice Celebration. 